Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Hello. So, Robbie, a lot's been going on. Uh, I've been busting out a bunch of episodes for Empire Files. You came out with this amazing finale to your epic trilogy about neocon operatives in D.C. called Maintaining the World Order. Uh, a Very Heavy Agenda is, of course, the Umbrella documentary. Maintaining the World Order is the third part just released on Vimeo. Everyone needs to check it out. It is absolutely epic. Um, and I just wanted to do like a quick interview with you, not quick, but I mean, just an interview with you about the movie and just kind of going over some things because it was so awesome. And I feel like there's other things that I want to know and people who've seen the movie maybe want to know too, or just have you expand on some points. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, first, you know, anyone who's seen the first two parts um, kind of realize that a lot of it is clips telling the story themselves it's not you're not putting in your opinion very much you're kind of letting the clips speak for themselves and that's kind of an interesting way to do a documentary um what made you want to do it in that style i mean you know you're you're already familiar with the the two th projects that i did, was doing before a very heavy agenda so i mean in a way it kind of started i guess with american bisque Mm -hmm. um, which is definitely more of an experiment. And at the time I made American Bisque, I mean, just to answer your question more, like more succinctly, it's that uh, I had always had an interest in doing movies from raw footage because, um, you know, because of like filmmakers like Adam Curtis um, and people like that. Uh, and, you know, like Power of Nightmares is mostly, it is mostly raw footage. Um, there is no... There's only a couple sections in it, a few interview foot, uh, interviews he did where he splices it in, and, and I'd say 90% of that movie series is raw footage. I mean, so in a way, it kind of gave me the confidence to think, well, you know, I already know this. I already know the narrative that I want to tell, more or less, and now it's just a matter of, like, finding the clips and sort of filling in. But, I mean, a very heavy agenda, I guess, was a little different than American Anthrax and American Bisque because... It wasn't until that, you know, the, the whole thing that happened with Liz Wall and you working at Russia Today, where I just started watching foreign policy initiative videos online. And then just from watching those, I started to, you know, hear creepy things and, and you know, certain things would pop out at me. And I didn't really intend to make a movie at first, but just, you know, until it, was, it wasn't until I actually got to videos of Robert Kagan or where I started thinking maybe I can make something with this because he's was so fascinatingly candid about his beliefs, um, you know, in these raw interviews that he would do. But then he was also very manipulative and trying to rewrite history and trying to make neocon policies sound, you know, legitimate and not crazy. So right. I found that very <laughs> fascinating. And that's kind of, I mean, at least part one of a very heavy agenda is all raw footage. There is no narration mm -hmm. whatsoever. And, uh, you know, that's how it started, really, is just that the neocons would say things so crazy by themselves with n really minimal editing and no narration that it it could almost stand on its own. So that was why it sort of went forward. 
anyone who's seen Vic Berger, uh, everyone check it out, Vic Berger's stuff on Twitter and YouTube, and also TV Carnage, which I'm obsessed with. I have all the TV Carnage documentaries. It's basically yeah. just raw compilations of like 80s and 90s, the most insane shit you'll ever see on TV, just put together with no narration. And parts of this really reminded me of that because it was so fucking weird and abstract and made it was super psychedelic, like that little star psychedelic thing that you had on the Trump cheerleaders and like all the all the candidates introducing their campaigns and it makes you feel so strange watching it it's so cool i just love so many different um effects that you made with this movie and different things that you did with it to compile these clips together um and they're so obscure like these clips are so fucking obscure and hard to find and you know it takes uh mike and i days sometimes to find like we'll be watching msnbc and see like all day they'll just be talking about one thing but it's really hard to actually find some of these clips online and somehow you found the most insane obscure clips from these assholes talking about everything under the sun of what they want to bomb and how they want to do it and and let's briefly for people who haven't seen part one and two of your documentary go back uh because under the Bush administration, obviously, these neocons were running shit. People know who they are there. They were in your face. But what they don't know is a lot of people behind the scenes that are advising these people are still in Washington, exerting their influence. They never left. And they're kind of completely off the radar until this film really, really put them under the spotlight. Robbie, what were parts one and two? Uh, what were you trying to expose with that? And how did you want to wrap it up with this finale? Well, I guess so. part one, I mean, in truth, if, if to completely honestly, the movie was originally going to just be one movie, um, part one, two, and three, and I and you know you even saw kind of a skeletal rough version of like a long time ago what I was originally intending to do, and I think you you know even remarked that this is just too big, you know, it's I think at that point it was like four and a half hours long or something, and you were like, what are you gonna do with this? You know, this is good, but it's how are you gonna release this? So. Uh, I mean, part one is very clearly uh, the the sort of the first term of the of the Obama administration. Like from the moments Bush leaves office to the first term of Obama, and sort of the promise of that, and and uh, and what you see is leading up to Obama is that the neocons are already starting to rebrand themselves. They're already starting to rewrite history. Um, they're already starting to sort of, you know, dismiss this idea that the project for the new American century had all this influence. Um, they're already trying, they're already downplaying that. And, and it's all to make way for basically them reopening the, their think tank under the name, the foreign policy initiative. That's sort of how part one ends. Um, and I don't want to be, you know, give too many spoilers, but part, you know, part two, um, the, the plot of part two is, you know, when Obama, right when Obama got into office, um, the neocons loved him. And I sort of showed that at the beginning of part two, and then slowly transitioned to, you know, even though they loved him, um, he made a few missteps and did things, you know, maybe not exactly as aggressively as they wanted to, and they completely turned against him. And, you know, arguably, even neocons inside of his administration in, in some way turned against him or were trying to. Um, push us into a war uh, with Russia, a proxy war with Russia on two fronts, uh, Ukraine, you know, which most people know about, but then also Syria, which is sort of what originally caused the neocons to jump 
or, or not jump ship, but just turn away from Obama and start sort of almost campaigning against him and editorializing against him was the Syria back down over the chemical weapons. Um, and so part two mostly just follows this sort of basically the disintegration from post-Soviet Union. You know, we're friends with Russia. We don't love Putin, but he's not, you know, Khrushchev or, you know, a communist dictator. We were still okay with him. But then it just, it's part two just sort of shows that all disintegrate and how easy and fast uh, that can disintegrate and how few people uh, takes to make it all disintegrate. And, you know, I think that's the main takeaway from part two. It's almost Mm -hmm. half of it's about the neocons, but half of it's also about showing the actual effect they have on reality. Um, And when Obama started to turn away from them, how that affected and and created this kind of schism in dc where you really saw that and it was super apparent yeah and in in in, in a weird way what you didn't see under bush you saw or i'm sorry what you didn't what you saw happening under obama with the schism was much different from bush where it actually seemed like a lot of people from inside obama's circle or even inside the state department were leaking things in the press against him a lot like regularly Right. Um, and, and that's something that didn't really happen under Bush uh, as much. I mean, it might have it might have been, but not not to this level where it literally seems like there's people who really do not like the direction Obama's been taking things and mm-hmm. want him to be way more aggressive. And they're tr- trying to turn people in the press against him. And I have a lot of I mean, I'm not saying this to defend Obama. I have a no, shitload no. of problems with him. I think he's awful. Um, but it just but, shows you how crazy they are, which is that exactly. that's not good enough for them. You yeah, know? exactly. That even just a slight turn, you know, uh, that he's going to have an independent view and actually be thoughtful about <laughs> right. an issue and not do something right away that they freak out. Right. It shows how dire things are, really. I mean, it's, it's kind of scary when you think about it that way, that, that even Obama, to them, you know, is, is, a really, is, is really throwing off their plans. So... so- and, you know, what's really interesting about these people is you look at someone like Cheney and Karl Rove and there's something about their faces, just like Ted Cruz, that makes you want to punch them in the face. You know what I mean? Like there's something that is just so evil that's just coming out of them. It's just pouring out of their pores <laughs> um, that you could just tell. But when you look at someone like who's I, I keep forgetting his name, Fred Kagan's brother, who's married to Kim Kagan, not Don's dad. No, you're talking about Fred. Fred is Fred, married Fred. to Kim. Sorry, Fred's yeah. Fred Kagan is so, you know, he's disgusting looking and he looks like one of those like typical DC people, but he looks so dorky and and just kind of ridiculous looking. You know what I mean? He looks like he would be wearing like a big bird outfit um, like well, at a theme yeah. park. I mean, it's just so I think he almost looks bizarre. like Eric Wareheim of Tim and Eric. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. But like, <laughs> like, but like, like the, Eric Wareheim even, doing a character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but even like the more dorky version, like the kind of like fucked up brother of Eric Wilhelm. Yeah. But what's so weird about these neocons is that they all look like that. Fred, um, Don, Kim, they are the dorkiest people that you'll ever see. Um, and that's what I feel like it's almost a little bit harder to really get that sense of like evil from them. You know what I mean? Or like just that absolutely what they're trying to like this Machiavellian grand plan. And, you know, I think that that also really deters like the fear factor in people where they're like, we're not going to be scared of these people. Look at them. They're ridiculous. And so just talk about that difference in neoconservative ideology where you have the Bush administration visibly evil, palpably evil, moving on to the Kagan family, exerting so much influence in DC and looking so just kind of silly and dorky. <laughs> well, I think I think it's an interesting point. I mean, the Bush administration 
I would argue that there are some people in the Bush administration who did have that sort of nerdy neocon quality, mm -hmm. but it was only because they were so associated with Bush policies that we think of them as like evil, sort of tyrannical people now. But I would argue that like Condi Rice and John Yu kind of fall into that mm -hmm. category you're talking about, where if they were outsiders, we would have thought of them as like non-threatening nerds who were just saying really crazy right, right. things, maybe. Um, especially John Yu, you know, he looked, yeah. so, um, but no, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, I don't think that that's like part of the plan, like no. that that's like <laughs> on purpose, but like, uh, they definitely function on, you know, on, on this really interesting intellectual plane where, you know, even people who are into foreign policy making, I think even a lot of them find you know kim kagan and fred kagan maybe a little too dry and dorky for them so it's it is really interesting that you know fred kagan he seems like one of these more intellectual nerdy analytical people but you know you go back to 9-1201 and there he is literally saying that we should send u.s ground troops into palestine and saying that we shouldn't go after who was behind 9-11 because it doesn't matter we should right. just attack all these other countries because it's a great opportunity in a time period to do it. Um, and that, to me, is even crazier. It's a more crazy rhetorical articulation of what a lot of people think that the Bush uh, doctrine was than the mm -hmm. Bush ever actually articulated. I mean, if you really think about it, he never articulated it quite like that. You know, in part three, I show a few clips. I don't show a whole lot, but I show enough to really kind of give the you know the audience evidence that there were people not necessarily in the bush administration but there were neocons who were pushing bush's agenda who were literally going out there on the day saying we we shouldn't go after who did this and that's right. very strange i mean that's just something that i can't wrap my head around why anyone would go out there and say that on the day of 9 11 <laughs> that we should go after other countries and not the people responsible for the attack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was shocking. He was like, he was like, we should go after bizarre. the Palestinian Authority, and he was like, because well, what I didn't realize, Robbie, until watching your documentary is, I just thought it was the the fake clips, not the fake clips, but I mean like purposefully oh, the dancing those clips of the dancing. Oh, buses. you didn't realize didn't there was realize, a fucking script. But I didn't realize that they had actually said that the Palestinian Authority was oh, yeah, responsible. Dude. Like four hours. Moly. No, get it. Get this, Abby. Literally was tell people what like, happened. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now, now everyone says you know WikiLeaks is like mm -hmm. anti nine eleven truth or whatever. Like people have said this over the years because Julian Assange you know says he 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 thinks Al Qaeda did it or whatever. But the interesting thing is there's actually a WikiLeaks page that barely anyone knows about called the WikiLeaks nine eleven pager leaks, and on the day of nine eleven they have re they have these logs of this like corporate pager data like messages being sent back and forth between companies and like wire services some sort of digital communication format that's like not used anymore today i guess mm -hmm. um and in these leaks you can see uh reuters news agency within seconds of the pentagon being hit by a plane this is at 9 40 in the morning when people are waking up on the west coast the first thing I remember learning when I woke up here in California to 9-11 was that Palestinians did it. Wow. That Palestinians were responsible because that was the very first claim of responsibility, and it stayed on the news and was repeated for over four hours. Wow. Um, wow. And the only reason I brought up the pager leaks is because you can see the t very specific timeline of people 
reacting to it and being like, oh my God, Palestinians did this. Like they just took yeah, credit. How much damage did this do? Not just the I footage think it of did the dancing so much damage that we don't are, can't even begin to understand that it's still inside all of us on right. some level. This racist, angry fear, not even from 9-11 itself, because we didn't see the faces of the hijackers on the day of 9-11. We didn't see bin Laden plastered all over the news on, on, on the day of 9-11. We really didn't. I know that maybe people might think he was plastered all over the news, but he wasn't. Right. The only imagery we had of enemies or like faces of who did, might have done this were Palestinians. That's insane. And, and, and this is a fact. Yeah, and, um, and Don and, Kagan and, and, and Fred Kagan are saying it doesn't matter even if Palestine did do it. They're saying we should still invade them. Of course. And then, the, and then the radio host was like, really? He was like, so even if they didn't do it, we should invade them. He's like, yeah. He's like, because any group who wants to kill us, we should just go in right now. Like, now's our time to go in and just kill any group who wants to kill us in the future. It was like the Bush Doctrine just like laid out immediately, like you're just saying. Right mm -hmm. from the get-go, being like, boom, here's the Bush Doctrine, but we're taking it farther than even he will. Yeah, I mean, it's it's beyond the Bush Doctrine. And then what's so interesting to me is in that same phone call, and, and you know, and it's not too much of a spoiler since at the very beginning of part three, I show uh, this phone call. And there's two parts of it. I mean, there's actually three parts of the phone call that are interesting for completely different reasons. You know, one of them is Don Kagan kind of going on a little rant about how Arabs respect us the most when we are strong. Meaning that Arabs respect violence and force. They're barbarians, is what he's really saying. Right. Um, which is something else most neocons don't spell out quite like that, but he did. Um, and then also, he says, what would have happened if they would have had anthrax on that plane? Right. On 912. He, pre he predicted the anthrax attacks before any other neocon. And also, there were other neocons who did predict them, like Richard Pearl mm -hmm. and James Woolsey. And uh, it just shows, you know... It shows not only a creepy level of prescience to know that these things are coming right. or, you know, to be able to predict them, but then also the amount of greed, like that 9-11 wouldn't have been enough for him to get all this shit done that he wanted. He wants more. What would have happened if they would have had anthrax on the plane? Can you imagine? Nobody would be able to stop that. Like, think about, I mean, he, yeah, well, like, what's it's also crazy like, is like, why would he even say that? It's like, we're traumatized enough. It's like, damn, you're already talking about like anthrax attacks. It's like, dude, everyone's still well, reeling the, from the fact that two planes just hit the World Trade Center this morning. Exactly. And you're already talking about this. That's crazy. Which is, I mean, and, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but that's why I don't think that what he was saying was like meant for the general public. I think it was meant for people in He was a little bit too old. Circles. He maybe slipped a little bit. I mean, um, but I don't know what it means, you know, right, like I right. show, I show evidence in the movie that, you know, there may have been, uh, actual government hands behind, uh, the actual anthrax mail attack. Well, yeah. But, you have a whole movie on that, that people need to watch uh, totally aside yeah. from this. And, and I'm anthrax. never, you know, and I don't, I don't, I try not to take any leaps, you know, I just showed the evidence, I lay it out, but like at a certain point you'd really do have to wonder why did the Bush administration get on Cipro on the night of 9-11? And why did so many neocons act like the next attack was going to be anthrax? How did they know? Yeah, I mean, and I mean, then that... you go into the two people blamed and then even the guy who supposedly killed himself. I mean, it just there's so many questions. Everyone watch American Anthrax. It's it's really great. And I mean, it just goes along with it's just a, this is just a side note on this story. But really, it's a whole issue that has not been solved at all. Um, is it yeah. OK if we move on to the whole world order thing? Because... This is really interesting. You know, people, when they hear world order, new world order, they think Alex Jones, they think 
<laughs> Illuminati, they think of just like this like weird ubiquitous like ruling elite that's like in a smoky room like the X-Files guy. But really what's really happening is that here are the architects right here. They're right here. The Kagan family. Bill Crystal. I mean, these literally they boast as themselves as the architect. Bill Crystal's in the movie saying, yeah, he's like Fred Kagan. You see him on the street. Everyone in D.C. knows that he's the architect of the Iraq troop surge. And you're like, this is what these people say. They are the architects themselves. We don't need to think of them as some shadowy ruling elite that's like behind closed doors. Here they are. They just really haven't been called out as much as they should. And they call no. it world order over and over and over again. We're not just talking about Bush seniors mm -hmm. world order speech. We're talking about Fred Kagan and Robert Kagan saying this term so much that it's just normal for them. World order. What does that mean? Why did you call it maintaining the world order? Well, yeah, I think that's a really a, an important distinction to make is that while the term new world order has been associated with conspiracy theory culture, these people still use the term world order all the time and they mm -hmm. use it seriously. And I called it that because... Um, you know, I really see what they do, what their job is, and that the way they see it is they feel that their job is to maintain the world order. Mm -hmm. And that if they don't, um, the world order will change and we will lose our position in the world. Um, and I think, you know, one of the most interesting uh, examples of this is in part one, where Robert Kagan says um, that after the Soviet Union collapse, or w when the Soviet Union existed, the world was a bipolar world. And uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the world is in a, in a state of chaos now um, uh, because we don't have that sort of bipolar uh, like situation happening, mm -hmm. you know, with like a main adversary or adversary like Russia uh, for us to fight. Um, and, you know, I guess, you know, to him, uh, you know, if you don't have sort of like another force sort of keeping the balance, then we need to keep, you know, we need to maintain uh, the world order completely uh, ourselves. Um, and, and I guess by world order, what he, what he means is just um, uh, th that America is dominant and, and is there to sort of, you know, keep the peace by force that if another country or another dictator tries to, you know, invade a sovereign country or whatever, um, that, you know, we'll, we'll be there to stop it and to protect the countries. I mean, that's, I really believe that on some level, like the Kagans believe that it's, there's a moral backing to this sort of belief system. Yeah. Like um, they, they believe in American exceptionalism so much that it's like, they really do think that peace by force is like a, a thing, even though that means they dropping a ton of bombs. Into it. And, yeah. 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 And, and that, I think that's, maybe what a lot of people have trouble with, especially when you're coming at it from the conspiracy movement, because you, you would like to think that this is all done in secret, mm -hmm. that it's all, you know, done in the smoky rooms that it's all done in code that they don't say out loud the things that they're really planning. But I guess what I've found they're making this movie is that it's all, it's all out there to find. Yeah. It's all open source information. It's not stuff that's secret. Um, and, it's very simple. It's not even really like a complicated philosophy either. It's very simple. It does come down to American exceptionalism. Um, and maintaining know. empire. Like the, and like maintaining the peace through force. Peace to them is empire. The, like that's just yeah, the maintenance of empire is peace. 
but they'll but they'll put it inside of a moral framework and and sort of spin it. And depending on, you know, if you go to like a liberal interventionist, they'll spin it in a little bit more of like a Democrat-friendly, liberal-sounding way, whereas a neocon or a more of a conservative will spin it in a more like protection, like we need to like, you know, we need to like stop these, you know, we need to like keep our, keep us safe. Like, right. so no matter which way you, you know, you find this belief, it's always, uh, it's very simple and it does boil down to that. Um, so... Yeah. Um, and what's also really interesting is um, everyone in everyone in Kagan's family. Let's talk about like what what influence is actually being exerted here, because it's not just that they write books. It's not just that Obama's carrying around Robert Kagan's book, right? Reading it, which is interesting. And it's not just that they write these policy prescriptions. It's like literally everyone in the Kagan family is working at a different think tank. Literally all of these think tanks are promoting war and really involved in the day to day on the ground operations in Syria, Ukraine, Iraq, Kim Kagan's relationship with General Petraeus, which was the highest military ranking official in the U.S. at the time. Mm -hmm. um, that was really creepy. I mean, talk about Kim Kagan in, in particular, because here's a woman who's completely off the radar, um, way more so than her, you know, than her other family members. She yeah. founded a uh, think tank called the Policy for or Institute for War. Excuse me. Talk about the Institute, Institute for the Study of War. Oh, I'm sorry. Institute for the Study of War. Talk about what this institute is, how it's portrayed, funded, and far-reaching in terms of influence. Well, this one was was really interesting one for me because I, when I originally set out to make a very heavy agenda, I was going to focus on the project for the New American Century and sort of the transition to how they became the Foreign Policy Initiative and sort of stay in that zone. But as I started making it, I realized that Ultimately, it really isn't even really about the names of these think tanks and like these individual think tank groups because they all cross over mm -hmm. and they all, you know, all these people rotate through these think tanks. Brookings. Fred Kagan. Yep. Oh, yeah. But, but the interesting thing is you'll see a lot of the neocons stay on a certain specific think tank circuit where Brookings, someone like Robert Kagan can navigate through all the think tanks, Brookings, Atlantic Council, mm -hmm. Foreign Policy Initiative. FDD, you know, all any think tank you can imagine, he he can find a place there. Someone like Fred Kagan probably couldn't. Um, he's more comfortable at like AEI, mm -hmm. places like that. Kim Kagan is more, she doesn't really do many talks at think tanks. She's very much stays at the Institute for the Study of War. Um, so you would think, oh, that's, you know, maybe like an obscure think tank. She doesn't get out much and, and sort of make the rounds to these other places in D.C., but what you find is that the Institute for the Study of War is actually the most deeply plugged into like the actual military industrial complex think tank in Washington, D.C. by far. Mm -hmm. um, and not only the defense corporations that fund it, but also how many military officials are involved in it, how many retired generals, um, how what kind of access the Institute for the Study of War was given during actual war, uh, war like in war zones. Um, you know, bigger, bigger, uh, higher levels than any consulting entity um, in the in the Iraq War or Afghanistan War that we know of. They actually got to sit in a desk in the same office as General Betrayus and just shoot the shit and make pol like collaborate on policy with them on a day to day basis. That is highly unusual. Um, you know, you know, everyone talks about the corruption of you know Cheney and and Halliburton mm -hmm, and KBR mm -hmm. in Iraq and stuff, but you know, was, there was never anything like that. 
you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just a think tank that's like the bridge, but the think tank's being funded by defense corporations. And you have Kim Kagan sitting down with, with Petraeus, Petraeus saying that he literally gets daily briefs from the Kagans. And he's like, and then, and, and then like and, the crowd laughs and he's like, no, I'm not joking. He's like, I yeah. really do get briefs. And he was like, and I have to basically check in to make sure I'm saying everything right with Kim. And it's like, wow, I know yeah. you're being facetious, but are you really? Because this is fucking crazy. No, no, he wasn't. Yeah, I mean, the, I know. the thing was, I mean, I, th- I think and, that but, he was like pretending to, but like you could tell that he actually was not. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like, because to them, they trust the Kagans. They mm-hmm. think that the Kagans are incredibly intelligent. And have the best interests of like, you know, our country in mind and like our troop. We want to protect the mm-hmm. troops and stuff. I mean, I think they really put a lot of trust into these people. And that's the incredibly bizarre thing to me is as of Obama was a, must have been 100 percent on board with this idea. Right. Um, because like, it's just so unorthodox. I mean, like he must have approved it and written off on it because no one in, in their right mind would allow you know, two think tank, you know, defense contra- contractor funded <laughs> people like helps. It just, it's just so bizarre. Um, and the fact to me that the Elizabeth O'Baggy scandal was what eclipsed everything else is also interesting because it's not really compared to what the Institute for Study of War is. Elizabeth O'Baggy, what she did is let's, really not that much different than what they do every day. And let's talk about her in one second. Um, yeah, because I want to no. introduce her because it's really crazy. So like, yeah, but but uh, wrapping up the Institute for the Study of War, I mean, the MSM, as you show, they were using their maps, you know, almost every day across the mainstream media. Oh, literally every day. Stats. Yeah. Um, very, very interesting there. Um, so talk about who Elizabeth O'Baggy is, because this is a woman who is involved in both the Institute for the Study of War and the Syrian Emergency Task Force. And it's kind of one of these power brokers that this woman was talking about in your movie um, about the secret elite, who these people really are, kind of just seamlessly moving from one government institution to the next among government consultancy think tanks and media. Yeah, I mean, for some reason, um, this became sort of the scandal. This is the only time that Institute for Study of War really the only time any one of these like neocon think tanks got became a story um, in, in recent memory that I know of uh, was this woman, Elizabeth O'Baggy. Um, she claimed she had a PhD. She didn't, I guess she lied about it uh, to, to, you know, act credentialed enough or sort of academic enough to be able to write a paper on how the Syrian rebels were a mostly moderate opposition force. And this, she wrote this paper for the Institute for the Study of War. And for some reason, it became this scandal that while she wrote this paper, she was also working for the Syrian Emergency Task Force, which, of course, you know, as, um, you know, uh, Moaz Mustafa, Evan Barrett, and Elizabeth Obagi. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a, a group of these almost like millennial aged, like neocon shills, like, and, and, they're almost, you know, their faces and what they do at this group, the Syrian Emergency Task Force, it really would have fit perfectly in my in part two of a very heavy agenda, especially with the subtitle, you know, how we learn to stop worrying and love the neo neocons, because these these type of people are exactly uh, the same as those kinds of new neocons, except instead of, uh, you know, pretending like they're intellectuals and like they write these more sort of like strategic papers, like the people at the Syrian Emergency Task Force have one goal, and it is to support and back the Syrian rebels, uh, the Free Syrian Army in Syria against Assad. 
Um, and it's creepy in the sense that it is also very similar to what Reagan had going in the 80s with his freedom fighters, uh, you know, fighting all these communist regimes around the world uh, with, you know, like putting up front groups basically in the United States, you know, acting like they were like, you know, pro, you know, the, the, this, you know, I don't know, like in Nicaragua and stuff and all these different, you know, entities propping them up um, and pretending like they're these independent organizations when clearly they're front groups for either defense contractors, CIA, military, government, who knows? And the Syrian Emergency Task Force is a perfect example of sort of that Reagan era thing being resurrected now. But to me, it's scarier now because it's like more out in the open and it's just like not, it's not even hidden or they don't even try to make it seem like it's, it's something, you know, um, I don't even know what I'm trying to say. I guess like, a, no, I know exactly what you're trying to it say. It's so corrupt on its face. Well, I know exactly um, what you're trying to say. But no, I think that, look, we knew, we know now that funding the rebels and the Taliban and, and bin Laden's forces was a horrible mistake, but I don't even think back then they were actually openly saying, we're going to find like, we're going to fund Islamic extremists to fight Russians. Back then it was way more obfuscated, way more like an under the cover CIA op under the radar of something else. Maybe it was clear that we were like supporting them, but I don't know if it was clear that we were actually sending them tons and tons of weapons and cash. Now it's become a no, millennial right. yeah, policy. That's the distinction. We were yeah, it's like some them, sort of millennial policy now. And now where people our age are like, yeah, like we need to fund rebels. Like, I don't care if they're neo-Nazis in Ukraine or Islamic fundamentalists in Syria. It's like we support funding rebels as if we're just fucking morons who have no grasp on what history means and what has happened with these basically duplicate maneuvers back in the day. So that's the difference is we have people like Jamie Kirchick actually dredging up the funding of the Taliban, saying that that was a good thing. Why can't we do that now when it comes to Syria? Not being able to answer what's going to happen when we fill the void once Assad's gone. Obviously, ISIS is going to go in its place. So it's like these crazy arguments that you just hear over and over again that are shocking because they're fully endorsed by millennials and people like on BuzzFeed and Daily Beast when it's just so um, erroneous and we know that and you're it's talking a completely fallacious policy. Yeah, and you're talking about mostly like the neocons or conservative yeah, yeah. people. I mean, to me, what's almost more disturbing and, and problematic is there's a lot of people who act like they're kind of Marxist and really leftist people who are incredibly um, manipulative in the ways that they talk about the Syrian rebellion. And they don't, they downplay the CIA involvement and they, you know, exaggerate Assad's brutality. Um, people like Charles Davis and Molly Crabapple. I mean, to me, that mindset is actually in some ways more destructive because at least people like Jamie Kirchick, we know what he's trying to do. A lot of people are, are you know, know what he's trying to do. Um, when you insert that kind of mindset onto the left and, you know, into circles on the left, you actually can do a lot of damage. Um, and uh, I think we've seen, we've seen the damage that's been done already is that, unfortunately, I have a lot, I cannot respect most people that I used to respect on the left anymore for not taking a stand against our involvement in Syria. It is actually really, really upsetting. And I feel like we have lost a lot of ground on the left, especially the anti-war left movement, by not only allowing this to sort of continue and, and not you know speak up against it enough, but also allowing a lot of people on the left to passively endorse it and to not call them out. 
Um, and I think we, you know, we, I blame myself for that. Like I, there's a lot of people on the left who I respect. I'm like, ah, you know, maybe they are just on the fence on Syria, but you know, they're good on everything else. I'm, I cannot do that anymore. To me, um, passive endorsement of what we did in Syria is really, 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 really damaging, uh, to the dialogue. And it continues to be, and you really are helping Obama basically, uh, you know, destroy, uh, the 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 momentum on the left by doing that um and i feel like that's part of what happened is obama's you know whatever we did to meddle in the arab spring um you know this you know everyone's like oh it's not all the cia doing that you're a conspiracy theorist but if the cia was meddling in it from the very beginning which i believe they were they've largely succeeded in making it seem like we had nothing to do with that and we just step in when we have to yeah, um, I mean, and that's v- scary because yeah, that's v- the new way that they're going to do this. I yeah, think. yeah, and Vijay Prashad is probably the best person on Syria because he explains it in a way that's really lucid. He just talks about how yes, there was a genuine uprising, just like there was in all these countries at the beginning, but it wasn't nearly big enough to actually gain ground. And so the CIA yeah. sent their ambassadors there from the very beginning. We're on the ground, just like how crazy it would be if Putin was on the ground and Occupy Wall Street, galvanizing Americans to uprise against their government. That's how crazy it was when we were just on the ground at the very beginning of the uprising, continuing to, to try to make it happen when it really there was, n- there was never a chance without heavy CIA intervention and funding of these groups to even have a chance to fight Assad. Now here we are years later. Anyone who's continuing to call for a no-fly zone, anyone who's continuing to call at this point is actually sociopathic because of what has happened. It's like I could see people from the very beginning of the Arab Spring saying, yeah, let's support the uprising. But holy shit, if you're if you are actually like not clear on your Syria line now, then you are definitely part of the problem because, wow, how could you even remotely defend what the U.S. has done? Yeah. And how could you not blame what you know i mean even if you don't if you don't want to take the leap of saying that like we helped create isis which i can understand is like a pretty inflammatory you know claim but not but just to not acknowledge that like we largely are to blame for not you know it's not even pulling out of iraq a lot of the conservatives are like oh yeah we pulled out of iraq too soon we cut and run like that's a really fucking dumb dumbass talking point to me the real talking point that people should be saying is that uh we we, we push back Assad and in sort of that vacuum, you know, everyone's like, well, what are we going to do in the vacuum of Assad? ISIS is going to take over. That's already happened. We push right. back Assad. ISIS was fucking created in that vacuum. It wasn't even just in Iraq. To me, I think ISIS really gained most of their momentum in Syria. And because Libya. in Iraq, there was Libya, kind of more of a sure. lawless, lawless Wild West. Like things were sort of already you know, is kind of like a, but, but Syria, the fact that they were able to gain so much ground there, largely, um, we are responsible, the United States. Well, look at Libya. Libya was a total free for all, which really helped consolidate ISIS and, and the Gaddafi's forces who not only Gaddafi's forces, but a lot of people that supported Gaddafi on the ground had nowhere to go. There were all these entangling alliances on the ground that was also a huge vacuum. Um, so that, you know, we can't, we can't put aside that. I mean, that was entirely the U.S.'s fault. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, so I mean, come yeah. on. I mean, what it's outrageous. I wanted to also talk. Let's get a little bit more into Ukraine and Syria, because I think that these are two instances that you were talking about, which were proxy battlegrounds from the U.S. and Russia and really showed the neocons influence still in D.C. Um, let's talk about the the funding that John Co- Conyers tried to ban funding for neo-Nazis in Ukraine. 
Very interesting. First, you have Elliot Engel, who was spoke at the FBI. He was also involved in the FBI, right? One of the. F- um, Elliot Engel, he just he just would speak out okay. a lot. So he's yeah, he's an ally. He's an FBI ally. He's clearly influenced by the neocons. He initiated a, mil- a Ukraine military assistance bill along with that other woman. I forget who she is. Ross Lentum. I can't pronounce her last name from Florida. So, so, you know, in this bill, of course, and I want you to explain this more, um, John Conyers tries to introduce an amendment to ban funding for neo-Nazi groups in, as part of this bill, which passed. What happened there? Um, and talk about, like, the amendment, the bill, and what ended up happening. Oh, you mean the the vote for the arms? Yeah, like, like just the bill to fund Conyers' amendment and then how they ended up blocking it at the end, basically. Well, this is, to me, this is actually a really scary thing, and... You know, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying that like, I'm the only one who picked on the, up on this narrative, but it's for some reason, it's just not a narrative I'm hearing very many people uh, st- talking about, which is that I believe that Obama um, has purposely dragged his feet on funding the Ukrainian army, um, you know, and, and in some way he is determined to keep it that way until he leaves office. And, um, and what's interesting about that is, you know, everyone talks about how obstructionist the house and Senate has been towards Obama. They never pass anything that he wants to pass or whatever. And they, you know, the Republicans just always block him at every turn. But what's interesting in this instance, instance is it's one of the only instances I know of where the house and Senate overwhelmingly voted multiple times, not just one time. Right. When I show in the movie, that's one vote. They did it again. To put even more pressure on the administration um, to send offensive weapons to Ukraine, uh, and offensive weapons meaning like tanks, guns, bombs, missiles, planes, you know, basically fully putting us into a locked new Cold loaded. War pivot. Hundred percent locked. Yeah, and where we've never even been before. I mean, even when we were in the Cold War with Russia, we were never there. I mean, as I mean, we did it in South America and in the Middle right, East, but right. doing it in Europe—that is a whole new fucking ball game. Right. Um. So, it's really, really scary when you think that, as be- horrible and as bad and as neocon that you know as Obama has been this whole time, that that he in some way was was trying to prevent this from happening. Mm-hmm. Um. And you know. It's just a new president's not going to prevent it from happening. They're going to vote it in, you know, for whatever reason Obama decided not to, and 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 I don't, I cannot see anyone getting in office who's going to continue that what Obama was doing. They're just going to be like, oh, of course we should send these, you know, um, and no one in the Congress and Senate is going to is going to say otherwise because they all wanted it. Look at the vote tally. The end of the vote was something like three hundred and ninety to forty, you know. And that's scary. Um, but what's even crazier, and you mentioned the Conyers Amendment, um, is that they actually, uh, they allowed John Conyers to attach an amendment blocking funding to a specific battalion of the Ukrainian army called the Azov Battalion, which is an openly neo-Nazi group. Um, and there's not even any question that they're neo-Nazi. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's not a Russian propaganda talking point it's a hundred percent true 100 percent. right even Thousands the guardian soldiers even the guardian like reports on them and says like they don open nazi insignia you know there's no question yeah and i mean even 
the groups that aren't openly neo-Nazi, they are extremely fascist. I mean, I show a clip in the in the movie, and this is something that didn't even make any headlines, where it's an Ukrainian militia group crucifying a Russian separatist. Right. Literally crucifying him. Um, not like a, pre, you know, it was just, just for fun. And they were filming it. I mean, it lo- almost seems like an ISIS video. Right. But way lower production values. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so... But then, you know, you would think, oh, of course, you know, you know, they don't want to look, they don't want to be too embarrassing about the way we fund this army. So, of course, we're going to sort of, you know, quietly block the funding to this Nazi group. But no, not the case. The Pentagon was so eager to get the money to all of the Ukrainian army that they secretly uh, tried to remove and succeeded in removing the Conyers Amendment because they wanted all that money to get to everybody over there including the fucking nazis like literal let's, let's repeat nazis that. let's repeat that conyers uh, put an amendment in there to ban the neo-nazi funding uh, yeah. it got voted in then the pentagon went around everyone in the entire congress and actually lifted the ban to implement funding of literal nazis they well, wanted to fund nazis as part yeah. of this whole operation exactly and it's actually i misspoke a little bit it's even worse than what you just said because the pentagon didn't just secretly do it and go over behind everyone's back. They convinced the House Intelligence Committee to like remove the amendment after the fact without Conyers being there. Wow. So they like went back to Congress and were like, "Hey guys, like here's why we need to fund the neo Nazis. Like, can you get on board <laughs> with this?" And they agreed. So, um, it's it's just it's incredibly strange. And what's sad to me is that because everyone got on this stupid ass bandwagon. Including yeah. a lot of people on the left who I used to have respect for about hating RT and sort of this soft boycott against RT, you know, Russia Today. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's in part why a lot of people never really followed up on this idea that there are neo Nazis fighting in Ukraine. Dude, because totally. Russia Today used to talk about that all the time. Dude, totally. And everyone's yeah. like, and now everyone's like, oh, everything Russia Today said, that's all propaganda. Like, uh, fuck, fuck RT. It, it's, it's, like, like, it's like this. It's like everything by extension that RT was saying yeah. was automatically falsified. Whether it yep. was just a leaked phone call of Newland literally just explaining who was yep. going to be put in the government or the neo-Nazi thing and a lot of stuff. And no one picked up on it because no one wanted to touch it because it was coming from RT. Well, guess what? It's fucking true. And I remember the neo-Nazi ban when it came out. I was like, wow, that's really crazy. I was like, because the fact that they're actually putting this amendment in shows that there are neo-Nazis in Ukraine that are potentially getting funded. And I was like, that's huge in itself. Like, that was like a huge story that they were doing that. Holy shit. And then I saw like something about the ban being blocked or something. I never could have imagined how bad that actually was that they actually went above and said no um mm-hmm. wow that is just so crazy robbie that that happened yeah and, and honestly i mean uh there it's what's really sad to me and you know it's sad but it's also it's also good because there are still people out there who are really concerned and are tracking this but it's sad because there's so few of them right that aren't just like you know you know, obvious people who are pro-Russian or who work for RT or whatever, um, like Daniel Wright, the guy who who wrote, writes for Shadowproof, he's the only person that I saw write about this John Conyers amendment being overridden. Um, in Shadowproof, like Mark Ames, yeah, Mark Ames talks about it a lot. Yeah, and and that's just like, how is that possible? Right. This is a guy who is like almost like a household name of a congressman. Everybody knows who he is. He's black. 
It's not like he's just some random white congressman talking about neo-Nazis. I mean, it has a symbolic impact, right. I think. When I watched, right. like, I read that article by Daniel Wright, and I was like, you know what? You know, I haven't really looked into the neo-Nazi thing too much because I have been kind of confused about it. I don't mm -hmm. know how true it is. And I started to look into it more and more, and I watched that Conyers clip, and I was just blown away by it. So right. Watching him in Congress, you know, this old black man talking about how we can't fund neo-Nazis and they're openly <laughs> neo-Nazi. I mean, I'm surprised that wasn't on the, that clip wasn't on the news. I mean, it just right. seems so newsworthy to me. Right. Oh um, yeah. 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 Definitely. So <laughs> I, I, it's just disturbing to me what people are exposed to, like what people get to see. I mean, and that's part of why I, I really, it was really important for me to make this is because I do think that there is a very important story here. That's just not being told. Right, because of this partisan back and forth between like media outlets and like this warring narrative. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's really, really difficult to sift through. I'm so happy that you put that in there because it really um, shocked me. Oh, and then the clip that you, I mean, you reported on this in Breaking the Set. <clears throat> this just goes to show how many of these Ukraine votes have been done is that I think the one I show in my movie was actually the second one, but I show a clip from you um, uh, from breaking the set, just showing you mm -hmm. how long this has been going on, mm -hmm. where John McCain, after the first vote, Obama dragged his feet, was like, no, we should pass another bill that allows us to send the weapons, even if Obama doesn't decide right. to. Right. <laughs> like, even if Obama, like, just, just keeps dragging his feet, like, that means we can still send them somehow and go around him. Disgusting. And that's just insane. I mean... It's disgusting. And then you see this thing recently where Philip Reedlove uh, is basically uh, like saying that he's like he doesn't trust Obama's uh, on like NATO and Russia and stuff. Like he, mm -hmm. it's almost like the NATO commanders now are seeing Obama as a threat to them. Um, and that just really shows you how insane they are because we've never been into Obama as like a foreign policy person. We've always thought his foreign policy was too right. neocon. Right. So th it's like that just shows how far this has all shifted. I almost feel like, a, yeah, during Obama's first couple of years, he was like pushed so hard and so just like really um, acquiesced all his power to like these neocon advisors. And I feel like toward the end of his presidency, he's like reeled back and look at all these like kind of tokenistic measures he's trying to throw out there now. It's like he almost just realized, holy shit, my legacy is going to be like a Bush third. And I just really have to like... I don't know. I mean, who knows what happened behind the scenes, but clearly something shifted. And now it's just interesting to see him kind of doing all these like LGBTQ things. And like, you know, it's just weird. Yeah. No, but. it is really weird. I mean, and, and the sad thing is, I mean, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, Obama, I, I believe what he did, um, you know, what his administration did, it made the, the media, the state of the media in this country even worse than it was under Obama. I mean, under Bush, um, because at least under Bush, there was a lot of adversarial reporters who were very react, reacting to the Bush administration very strongly. Um, and then what we got under Obama is that we got a lot of media outlets, you know, really conservative ones going after Obama for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. and then like Adam Johnson just did a, an article where he went through over 100 articles of, of, um, by, about Obama by BuzzFeed and not a single one was critical. Like just wow. random articles. It wasn't even like he was picking. Wow. He just went through and surveyed. Um, it is almost quintessentially. It is like the biggest Obama pro Obama like propaganda outlet there is. Wow. Is BuzzFeed. 
Wow. Um, and that to me suggests something just beyond loyalty. That to me suggests coordination. And it makes sense because in part two of a very heavy agenda, it seems like they're right on board with some sort of inner State Department plan to start putting out anti-Russian propaganda. They were right there, ground mm -hmm. zero, mm -hmm. completely going along while Miriam Elder is hosting a town hall with John Kerry. Here's BuzzFeed writing all these stories about how Sochi is corrupt. The gay, you know, the gays are being beaten in the streets everywhere. The dogs, stray dogs being killed. It was just like, it was just being like pumped out. Yeah. And that's beyond like, you know, think progress is like pretty much, you won't see them criticizing Obama much either. But at the same time, they would never be putting out like anti-Russian propaganda. So it does suggest that there is something more insidious going on behind the scenes of like Daily Beast and BuzzFeed. And I think it really has to do with these operatives, like the Eli Lakes and the Josh Rogans and the Marion yeah. Elders who just had, they're like those fake stooges in DC who just super toe that line. It's I think it's a mixture between actual stooges and shills who get who know they're getting leaks from people mm -hmm. who are putting out agendas. Um, and then it's all it's a mixture of that and like millennial, young, naive people who want access and they don't understand or they're just not critical thinkers enough to understand that they are being used as an instrument for the U.S. government. Right. And I and I would argue that's more the case for vice. Um you know, but I mean, Shane Smith is not an idiot. You know, when Joe Biden comes to vice headquarters, he's not a dumbass. You know, he knows what the symbolism of that is. You know, let's let's move on to vice, because I think that yours is the best takedown I've ever seen on a vice because I mean, at least politically, because you see a lot of comedic like interpretations of vice, like the the fake onion thing or like on, you know, Jack Black's like Shane Smith smoking a cigar and like eating a piece of meat. Have you seen that? Like the the takedown on the um like mockumentary on vice it's really good but um but this is the first actual political takedown i've seen of vice and i think that there's many reasons i think that a lot of people revere vice i think a lot of young journalists want to write for vice they have written for vice because that you know they can really take submissions from anyone and stuff it's like huffington post so it's kind of like that third rail for a lot of like newbie journalists who are like i'm not going to go out there and criticize vice vice is the coolest hippest um, outlet that i could potentially write for or be a part of so i think that that's a part of it but it's so interesting because over the years, it's just become way more apparent of that they do have a political agenda and it's not good. Um, and it's very pro-U.S. and very anti just all of these things that we're talking about right now. Anti-Russia, mm -hmm. anti-Assad, all this stuff. I'm not saying that they should be pro-Assad. You know, I'm just saying take a neutral stance and no. really call out like the, the U.S.'s role, too. Talk about Vice. You expose them so well from the beginning, the foundation where Gavin McGinnis, this disgusting, bigoted, misogynist, now this alt-right contrarian asshole who's making out with Milo Yanapovich or whatever at like press conferences. He's like a fucking performance artist. Talk about him. Talk about Shane Smith. And, and what made you want to like show them from the beginning until today and what Vice really is? Yeah, well, I mean... <sighs> Shit, it's. I mean, I, I'm trying to f think about how long, far I should take this back. I guess. I mean, really, what all started for me was, um, you know, I had always was kind of turned off by Vice as a magazine. Um, you know, in my early twenties, it was sort of popular in the Bay Area. It was free. A lot of people would talk about it. Um, it was very like sexually risque. They had like nudity. You know, you would open like a random page and there'd just be like a, a chick with like her bush out, you know, with, you know, topless and stuff. So there's a lot of like 
it was like cutting edge in that sense like but like culturally. super gratuitous like sexuality for like yeah kind of no reason like they even the had like rapey stuff in it too like some weird alpha male like rape rape culture like apologist stuff in it and i do think a lot of that stuff came from gavin mcginnis originally mm-hmm. like terry richardson rose to popularity from vice mm-hmm. i'd never heard of him until vice and there would be articles you know with him with like underage girls just like chilling with him you know look they look like like super mm-hmm. young like teenage girls like naked chilling with them on the couch and stuff and you know it it had this sort of presentation of being this sort of like laissez-faire like we're gonna break down all the barriers like you know like polyamory like psychedelic <laughs> drugs like everything you know like noise music experimental mm-hmm. music like was in vice you know with, along with all this other shit so it was always not a not a political thing, but it was very important in the, in the cultural sense that it was like appropriating all these parts of obscure culture and sort of curating them for the more maybe less informed, more hipster type person. Right. Um, and that was a very important big thing at the time because you know the internet was even not you know not very big back then. Like in the early aughts, I mean. Uh, you know, a lot of this stuff was still really obscure, like knowledge about like psychedelic drugs, like 2CI, right. Alexander Shulgin. Well, nobody knew about any of that stuff. And now like through Vice, a lot of people feel like they're connected to a lot of this underground culture, mm-hmm. which to me raises some interesting questions based on what Vice is now, you know, because you have to wonder, you know, did the U.S. government just seize on this opportunity because they saw what Vice was doing? Or was there something from the very beginning sort of like, you know, involved in Vice's sort of modus operandi? I don't know. Um, But you asked about Gavin McGinnis and Shane Smith. um, And, you know, you see Gavin McGinnis and Shane Smith now. Gavin McGinnis is this like leader of the alt-right movement, Uh, you know, pro-Trump, you know, uh, anti-social justice lawyer, anti, you know, black rights just like anti-PC culture basically is like what the alt-right, how they represent themselves. And you could actually see a lot of hints of that proto-alt-right mindset, the thread throughout Vice's entire history, um, at least up until Gavin McGinnis left the company in 2006. But most people's understanding of Vice is a, like a post-2008, like, you know, HBO News, Vice News, um, they do these like cool, you know, vi- you know, shorts where Shane Smith and he goes to Uganda and there's like shit all over the beach. Like that's what most people know about Vice now. Um, but for me, what was really like what really changed the way I how I looked at Vice was the ISIS special. Uh, the first few ISIS specials where up until that moment. You know, I had seen stuff about ISIS. I had seen, you know, their videos. I think he even watched part of the James Foley beheading video. Mm-hmm. But it was like this huge change where all of a sudden Vice had this incredibly well-made, like, ride-along documentary with ISIS members. Incredibly close access to Vice. Um, and it was terrifying. I remember watching and thinking, like, what the... F-? Like, I remember getting scared watching it. Mm-hmm. Um it was scary. I mean, nobody ever did anything like this with Al Qaeda, you know, and, and, and because it was filmed in the vice style where it was like non-opinion, this is neutral. We're just here to observe. Um, it didn't feel like some kind of Fox news propaganda piece, you know, or anything like that. 
but it had the same effect on me. You know, I was feeling this visceral reaction in me that I would imagine other people would feel while watching Fox News about terrorism. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it frightened me because then I realized, you know, is this just organic? Is Vice just landing on something at the right, right, right place and right time and sort of putting this out there to write on the zeitgeist? Or is there something more to this? And the more I started looking into Vice, I mean, I, you know, I can't say what that special was, but I think the timing of it is very, very curious. Um, and I don't know if it's just pure, you know, luck on their part. Um, and they also got incredibly good access to the FSA. Um, and Al Nursra, um, you can actually see they admit that they got they they admit and they talk about how they got better access to these groups than any other media organization in the world, um, and I don't understand that you know because even intelligence agencies have trouble getting access to these groups. So that's the that's the part I'm very interested in is how does Vice not only have such good access, but then also um, you know. <laughs> and then how do people, you know, trust that they're some kind of not liberal, but they're like a, you know, a truth telling organization and that they're, they are somehow unbiased. Um, well, I remember, and- yeah, I remember when the ISIS thing came out and I was, I remember even, I think I put it up on media roots. Cause I was like, I felt like it was, it, it was like a, a little bit more fair because it showed what ISIS was actually doing to like, get people on their side like providing resources for the community but it really did scare the shit out of me too and looking back on it i totally agree it is really strange although i remember like looking into who provided it or who the guy was and it was like he claimed that he provided it freelance and that they bought it but i i have no idea um it doesn't take away a story there's a story on huffington post what's interesting is there was a story released around the same time that was sort of explaining how it happened um, oh. Because I feel like it needed an explanation, and people were sort of okay with that explanation. Mm. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it still seems very suspicious to me how they were able to get such incredible access to them, and just the timing of when that came out. It was like, I mean, it really did come out at the perfect time to start this like sort of wave of terrorism hysteria again. Um, but if it was some guy embedding himself with ISIS and then selling it to Vice, and that wouldn't be them getting the access with ISIS. But no, I mean, regardless, Shane has meetings with like ISIS members and stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> you mean he mean that Skype? That's what he uh, claims. Yeah, he like claims that he has meetings with them and stuff. So I, who knows what happened with that original one? It is really weird. But still, they've been running with that ever since, and that was like two years ago. So they they've been running with it ever since. And what I thought was really crazy. So Gavin, let's take this back. Gavin McGinnis is this disgusting figure who co-founded Vice with Shane Smith. In like 2007 or 2006, they split ways, but it doesn't detract from the fact that Gavin McGinnis had a huge foundational role in what the magazine was going to be about and where the direction politically and like culturally it was going to be taken. Since Vice TV has come on the map, it's been seized and bought up. Whether or not it was good from the beginning, I never thought it was really good i thought it was like an interesting way to do it because it never had a political angle to it it was always just showing a bunch of crazy shit all over the world with no real political commentary or greater context very neutral in terms of like why is this happening and how can it be fixed but then it started to take a different role when you're saying the isis stuff russia syria and and coincidentally that's when it started to get bought out bill maher and venezuela murdoch venezuela Venezuela. horrible on venezuela so basically every major 
point for U.S. hegemony that's been like a sore spot is really bad. Like vice is super bad and actually towing like the wrong line. And that's really, yeah. really bad because it's it's you know, there's millions of people who turn to vice for their news and think that it's like the most cutting edge, like super on point journalism that's going on. And and yes, Jason Leopold and some other people are doing great groundbreaking work. They're great. But it doesn't detract from the fact that like most of Vice's stuff is super pro-establishment, pro-empire, pro-American exceptionalism. And let's talk about the Russian roulette special because that to me was really crazy. I had no idea how many, just the sheer volume of of anti-Russia stuff um, and along with just like the never citing that uh, that Radio Free Europe and all these like U.S. funded outlets were U.S. funded. Talk about the Russian roulette special, how how many there were, because that's really bizarre. Well, I think I think it's technically still going. So I don't I think I, I think <laughs> I mean, there's definitely over 100 episodes. Wow, of it. it's crazy. And it's interesting because it actually started. Um, What's so funny to me about this special is as it progressed it started to try to pretend like it was more of like a neutral observational type of special or a series but i remember seeing the very first simon altrowski special i don't even know if it was called russian roulette it might have been called something else where he went to sochi and it was the most propagandistic pro-us um like generically anti-russian scripted thing i've ever seen vice put out um, I didn't put it in my film because it, it, you would have to wa- almost watch the whole thing to understand what I'm talking about. It was mm-hmm. hard to edit and show how pro-US pro it was. But it's basically Simon Otrowski just walking up to like random staff workers at the Olympics, like probably like minimum wage for Russian wages, mm-hmm. you know, putting up tents and shit. Like, like saying like, so why is, why is this Olympic so corrupt? Like, so when did you stop beating your wife? Like, I mean, he's lit- it's just the weirdest... Thing I've ever seen mm-hmm. and he just keeps walking up to random people like asking this very inflammatory question when I'm sorry when the Beijing Olympics happen in a country where they actually execute more people than any other country in the world and, and allegedly do organ harvesting people died while making the stadium in Beijing and we and there wasn't like a lick of negative US mm-hmm. media coverage mm-hmm. not a smidgen that's very important to look at because what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Why is Vice all of a sudden opening the door to, to like making like anti-Russian Olympics news specials? Um, and I think that it's pretty clear that there was on some level some U.S. State Department coordination and not even just with Vice. This is not unique to Vice. I think it was with a lot of the Western-friendly media channels, CNN. Um, I would argue Fox News was probably the least associated with this of all the mainstream channels believe it or not and 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 also it's like it doesn't even have to be like literal coordination but it's just the wave it's like just so generic and and predictable it's like what everyone's doing so of course vice is going to be there on the ground doing a bunch of snarky shit about it it's like wow how original that's that's like everyone's doing this and it's complete bullshit and yet you're going to do the same thing it was just like so stupid and their venezuela documentary was outrageous um it just showed we watched the whole thing. What was it? Like six parts or something. We watched all six parts. We were like, all right, we were just waiting for there to be some sort of context about why the crisis was happening, all the opposition, how they're like funded, you know, these funded like co-opted elites and all this shit. And it was like just completely staged. And I mean, there's so many things we had, you know, so many coup attempts there, actual coups. So like just zero context of what's going on in Venezuela. It just showed some guy running around, basically being accused of like, 
you know, getting tear gassed by security forces and how crazy it was. And he's like, has his bandana on and shit. He's like running around, like running around, basically hiding a bunch of places. And I was like, wow, this is the special on Venezuela. Like, what is this? It was crazy. And it was like making it seem like he was going to get shot at. And I was like, dude, you're not stop like wearing bulletproof vests and running around. You're like in Venezuela. Like, what are you doing? It was completely crazy. Um, so that's when I realized how I, I guess I didn't realize how bad it was until I watched that. Cause I know I just like refused to watch any of the Russian roulette stuff. Cause I just didn't even, couldn't even bring myself to, but like, that was crazy. The Venezuela thing. Yeah. And when I say state department coordination, I don't mean that like someone from the state department is going to vice and telling them what to say. I think it's more along the lines of they give vice access and it makes people at vice feel privileged. And because there's a naivety and sort of like, they want to grow and they want to be taken more seriously. They just do all this stuff because other news outlets do it too. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I agree with that. And I mean, you can, it's the access and it's also, you know, Obama and Biden visiting the headquarters of vice and having that be some cool thing. I mean, Putin never came and visited me at RT. No yeah, government yeah, officials right. from Russia did. I mean, that would be super weird if they did. I'd feel extremely uncomfortable as a yeah. journalist to even have the state from the state funded media organization showing up. <laughs> well, that's so. the thing. It's like, here's the, here's the thing that makes me think it's different because it's like, okay, yeah, you, you know, if, if Obama or Biden came into CNN, I'm sure people would be excited. They'd probably smile. They'd shake Biden's hand. They'd want to, you know, talk to him, maybe even take a picture. But the thing with CNN is they don't show, they don't show you footage of that happening and put it on the special and act proud of it. Yeah. Do they? No. Vice did. Vice acted really proud of the fact that Obama came and visited and chatted Shane Smith up. They were like super proud of it. Yeah, and that it was like to the me, biggest thing ever in his career. And that to me shows a creepy either level of naivety or just misunderstanding of what being a journalistic outlet is in this country. Complete misunderstanding and uh, lack of understanding of the importance of adversarial journalism. Um, and it's really unfortunate that Vice. Um, is either that dumb or just doesn't understand what a journalist outlet is supposed to be, you know, and they think that, oh, we're not journalists. We're just neutral. You know, we're centrist. We're, we're just not journalists here. It's like, no, actually you are journalists and you're really fucking bad ones. Right. Really, the, the, really, really bad. <laughs> the thing really that shocked bad. me the most was the Bank of America um, sponsored TV show that they're doing. Oh, yeah. Wasn't that weird? I had no idea. Can you tell doesn't us about that? doesn't even make sense. I just feel like sometimes I just slip shit in and just hope people won't notice. It's like, how did people not? It's like somebody wrote an article about that on Bloomberg, I think. But it's like, really? Wait, so what is it still ongoing or was it like a one off? No, I think it was very short. It was uh, it was kind of one of their pilot programs. It didn't go for very long. Yikes. Yeah. And you like how the, the host of it looks all like grizzled and like hipstery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, like the a beard stubbly dude. guy. Yeah. Like, I'm a fucking bank of America. Like, I'm, I'm just here to, like, chat you up about, like, your finances, yo. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what up, dude? Fuck banks. But, hey, I'm front <laughs> of a bank of America. Suck my dick. You're like, what is happening? <laughs> and then what was even crazier to me was seeing how bad Shane Smith's leg tattoos were. Oh, my God. It's Why so were they sad. so bad? It was shocking. It was like he's one of those, like, Hawaiian skater bros or something. <laughs> but it was, like, the worst I've ever seen. It was, like, tribal gone, like, viral on his leg. It was, like, a fucking tribal, like, um, tessellation or something. It was, like, the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Like, I'm shocked. I, I wonder if he got mm -hmm. them removed because, like, otherwise he just totally covers them up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, so let's let's move on to just like the back to the movie. Um, and this was great. I think that you should really release this part separately because a lot of people won't see this unless you do. And I think it's really important to release. So that's my my vote to get that vice section out there. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, you know, the biggest takeaway of, of the movie to me was the first of all bringing us into the GOP and the whole election circus today and seeing once again you see this this overt influence of like the talking points because all of you know Rubio Cruz all these people are repeating these talking points ad nauseum it was really bizarre and Jeb Bush so you saw like how all of them were being fed and curated by these people and it still didn't work because that people you know don't want these things and they really their egos were so big that they couldn't believe that that it, it didn't work. And then the other big takeaway is the the rhetoric that you've been saying this whole time is this revisionist rhetoric of the neoconservatives to now adopt liberalism. They don't like Islamophobia, and that's why you see them gravitating toward Hillary and being anti-Trump. Is like they're like, oh wow, this is way too much now. What Trump's doing is fucking nuts. Um, you know, we we're not Islamophobic. We are just liberal interventionists. You even see. Robert Kagan saying this. He's like, I don't oh, yeah. even know what neocon means anymore. He's like, I would consider myself a liberal interventionist where I just want to go and help people, you know, and just yeah. intervene when it's necessary. So talk about this rebranding effort and also how the neocons have inserted themselves in the entire election. And if you were vindicated to see that Robert Kagan's holding a fucking fundraiser for Hillary. I mean, vindicated and, and just incredibly <laughs> depressed at the same time. It's like, well, I mean, I'm going to admit something here for the first time ever. I've never, and it's not really like a big admission. And so, you know, people who kn know me probably assumed this, but I am the one who made the fake Robert Kagan Twitter account <laughs> that, that went on Twitter, uh, I think it was like a year and a half ago. And I kind of did it just to, as an experiment to see who would follow me. I, I... And a lot of the neocons in DC did, and they believed it. So for about a week, people believed this is a real account. Eli Lake promoted it. Jamie Kerchick promoted it. Um, you know, a bunch of the, a bunch of his colleagues, uh, you know, apparently promoted it, which tells me that he's actually pretty much in isolation a lot of the time, like we're just working in his office, like at home. He probably doesn't talk to these people very much. Um, but at the my very last tweet was that. I was officially announcing that I am advising Hillary Clinton for president. And this was before she even announced that she was running. And then all these people were like, oh, this is fake. Like, we, this is not real. Like, we know this is fake now. Um, and I had, I, when I wrote that tweet at the time, I had no idea how true it was going to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a total fucking joke. Um, and it's, it's, it seems completely likely to me at this point that Robert Kagan is directly advising her mm -hmm. um sh like shadow advising her mm -hmm. he's not admitted to it right now but why wouldn't he be right right um so yeah i mean that's that's a whole that that's yeah i feel vindicated in the sense that i mean it, it but it's like robert kagan going to hillary is you know with that comes so many other things that i did not expect like mm -hmm. The implosion of the GOP, you know, they they really in a lot of ways like sort of the shattering of the neocon clique, uh, because Bill Crystal is not on board with Hillary. So you see all these things happening that, you know, while I I am happy and vindicated that this happened, it's like I never there all these other unpredictable things had to happen to get there that I'm like just like holy shit like what 
Yeah, and it all happened kind of um, quick. Like, oh my god! And yeah. like, it's weird how like I mean, I'm not saying I don't know if your movie had anything to do with this, but it does seem like all of a sudden people are like talking about the Kagans more. Like, I just really? feel like there was there. I mean, yeah, I mean, like people even that I know on Twitter and stuff are like calling out this whole like neoconservative backing of Hillary and like really just bringing up his name more and more as if he's just a more prominent figure now. And I, I mean, it's just really interesting. It's great, you know, because just a year ago, I felt like you were really the only one talking about that family. So I think it's amazing. Yeah. No, I'm I'm really happy about it. I mean, like I saw this guy, John Hudson. He He's the one who broke that story about Hillary's. A fundraiser by Robert Kagan for foreign policy. Um, yeah, and uh, I sent him a copy of the movie. It seems like everybody who's knows about the Kagans is at least interested in the, to check out the movie. Yeah, so that's good. Um, but yeah, no, it's just incredibly bizarre that all these neocons, um, you know, the same neocons, pretty much Dan Senor, Elliot Abrams. Um, uh, who else? Um, Eric Edelman. They were advising Jeb Bush, Rubio, and even some of the same neocons were advising Ted Cruz. Elliot Abrams was advising all three at the same time. Right. And Elliot Abrams is like more of like an old school neocon who I sort of show at the beginning of part three um, was, you know, Robert Kagan was like running propaganda for him. And uh, he, you know, he would have gone to jail had it not been for being pardoned. You know, so right. we actually have like criminals, pardoned criminals, Watergate style, you know, Iran Contra criminals still working in these neocon circles, feeding Republican candidates for president talking points while right. they're debating. Right. So that's really interesting. And that's something I tried to show. I didn't go into too much detail about like who was feeding which talking points. I think the point I was trying to get across is it's like, the neocons were just betting on a lot of different yeah, and forces we don't, we in don't the race know, at once. Because all we know is that they're saying the same thing. So all we can assume yeah, exactly. is that they're being literally fed the same lines by the same people. I mean, we don't mm -hmm. know really what's happening behind the scenes, but it is very surreal when you see them. And yeah. let's, t let's just wrap this up really quickly with talking about the Trump thing, because I think it fits well into this conversation, how you, you end the movie talking about this Trump schism now where the neocons don't know what the hell to do. They're they're freaking out you know they they created this beast with their insane rhetoric and policies and now they're trying to detach themselves from this beast and and really double down on the liberal interventionist rhetoric and go toward the way of hillary because they know she'll be more secure with their foreign policy goals but and then and the, and the, at the same time they're all trying to sell this never trump thing you have jamie kerchick writing op-eds uh the you know um, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs writing up heads against Trump. It's a very fascinating time in history where you have this guy who you think would be perfect for the Republicans. He's a, you know, he wants to run the country like a business. Isn't, what, isn't that what they want? But of course, because he's unpredictable when it comes to foreign policy, they are scared shitless and they know that Hillary is a very firm bet. She planted her flag to go far more right than Obama during his whole administration. She's been called the most hawkish member. They know what they're getting with her. Um, so it's just really interesting to see them abandon kind of all the Republican values. And it really just lifts the curtain completely because it shows that Hillary's not a liberal. She's not progressive by any means. She's just a complete careerist, corporatist, chameleon criminal who will do whatever she needs to maintain power and reinforce the empire. And these people know that Trump is too yep. much of a unpredictable bet for them. But, you know, and then along with that, you have all this rhetoric of now Trump's going to bring fascism and 
and all this stuff. Well, really, I mean, who's to blame for Trump's rhetoric actually winning the people over? Who's to blame for the incessant fear mongering about a fake threat um, and and scaring everyone, um, treating everyone like babies in this country for the last 16 years? It wasn't Trump. I mean, no. I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying to let Trump off the hook now, but it is really important, and you bring this up that we have to understand the context of why Trump is popular and how this has all happened. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important because we cannot, we absolutely can't let people who helped bring, in my opinion, who helped bring fascism forth, act like they're against Trump because he's a fascist and they're scared of him because of that. I think that that is a very disingenuous position. And I'm going to try my hardest to fight against that narrative when I, and I've already seen a lot of these people for Buzzfeed who helped prop up the neocons, um, Jamie Kerchick, all, you know, all these new neocons essentially promoting this idea that, you know, Trump is, is this really scary, potentially form of fascism that we've never seen before. Um, when, I mean, I show clips in the movie and I could have found more and I would be, you know, I'd be happy to prove this, this theory of mine more. And it's not a theory. I think anybody who's been tracking the neocons long enough knows this, is that especially right after 9-11, their arrogance and hubris was so far off the rails that Trump doesn't even hold a candle to the level of craziness that these people were at right after 9-11. Um... Michael Ledeen actually talks about how we have a messianic vision in this country to impose our will over every other country in the world, and we can no, no, no easier get out of our need to kill people and conquer people than we can get out of our love for our food and our sports and our clothes, mm -hmm. like Americana. Like, it's so ingrained into our DNA. It's disgusting. And that... Our children will sing great songs about us in the years to come if we wage this total war against all of these tyrants. And we don't, and he even says, if we don't try to be clever, you know, we don't try to like rationalize it. We just, we just wage a total war against all these tyrants. Um, we will do very well, he says. Um, and, and, you know, the, so... Yeah, Marco Rubio was even saying it was a clash of civilizations. I mean, and that's talking points coming directly from these people. So it's like, don't tell me that, you know, that that you don't like, you don't believe in like the tenets of even what Trump is saying. Because even Ted Cruz, another neocon darling Tea Party idiot, uh, you know, said that he would, he even like made a snafu one day where he was like, yeah, he's like, we'd love to say what Trump is doing. You don't think that we want to get up there and say these things? He's like, but that wouldn't be presidential. And it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think what's also an int what's what's a a point that needs to be raised with what Trump did and why he frightened the neocons so much. It wasn't just like yeah, I'm sure that on some level they're probably worried he's going to be you know more isolationist than they mm -hmm. want. But I think that Trump can be convinced to go. I I, I don't think Trump is an as an anti-interventionist at all. I think yeah. that he can be easily swayed. He's an alpha male. Yeah. someone's whispering his ear to tell him that we need to take out whoever he'll do it yeah um so i think that that narrative about trump is kind of false what i do i, I in making this movie what i came to the conclusion of is that trump's what he did is he combined a very important conservative talking point that's been around since we were kids immigration you know anti-immigration um closing the border he combined that with the sort of neocon uh, push 
like for terrorism fear mongering mm-hmm. um, and Islamophobia. When neocons put out all that Islamophobic uh, like rhetoric, um, I don't think that their intention was to like create such a xenophobic reaction mm-hmm. that we would want to close our borders and like right. block Muslims from coming in. That was never their intention. They wanted to just like make us hate and dehumanize Muslims to the point where when we killed millions of them in the Middle East, we wouldn't bat an eyelash. Right. Uh, but what Trump is doing is he's, tur- he's almost turning their rhetoric against them and making it backfire back into this sort of isolationist position where Muslims are so scary and so dangerous that we actually now, like, it's almost become, instead of like a means to intervene in other countries, our fear of Muslims, it's become a means to like close all our shit down and like lock, lock down our country and protect our country. Right, right, like, right. Like in this sort of like territorial sense. That is never what the neocons wanted to do. Yeah, like because because opposite. even because even you know even though people have reverted to this like really fear mongered xenophobic like racist position, they still I think they still fundamentally understand how fucked up these adventures in the Middle East have been. So it's like yeah. Trump has kind of taken advantage of that and yeah, reversed their rhetoric to be like yeah, this was all crazy. This is what we need to do: like lock down, close our borders, all this stuff. And they're like, whoa, whoa, exactly. whoa, exactly, exactly. So um, that's so, why yeah, it's, it's interesting totally to me. That's why it's interesting to me that this is now seen as fascism, uh, because it seems like in a cartoonish, more surface level, it is. It's like xenophobically driven. He's trying to like you know, like uh, basically like stop minorities from you know entering the country or having rights, like marginalizing minorities. It is a very like openly fascist thing to do. But I think to me, what's scary is that. I think that it's almost like we only feel fascism when it's like we're directly maybe experiencing it, you know, on our own population. But it's like, what do you think happens when we wage endless war mm-hmm. and rationalize it? What do you, where do you think that mental, more moral energy is going to go? It's going to boomerang back and come back to haunt us. I mean, it, it's not like that you can't just do that and expect to have maintain a like a liberal democracy. Do you, right. do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, of course. Like you have to, basically what I'm saying is at the very least, you have to bend the rules of the laws in the domestic policy of the country to be able to do this in the first place. And just bending them is going to open the door to completely breaking them and then circumventing them, which we saw happen almost over a decade ago already. So that all had to come back. And I think that Trump is in a lot of ways sort of the symbolic representation of where all that was going to go. And yeah, the only totally. reason they don't like him is not because of any of that stuff. It's just, it is because he's anti-interventionist and he's stealing the wind from their sails. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I think in a way they probably could sway him to be an interventionist. Like I was saying, I don't yeah. know if that's. And they probably so, will, but right now they're still just like, can't believe what of happened. Of course they're going to try. Like the Absolutely. Got pulled over under them. But yeah, um, I wanted to wrap this up, but just by talking about Hillary Clinton really quick, because she, of course, probably will be president of the United States. And the whole I'm already getting baited and manipulated by all these Hillary supporters just being like, OK, now that Bernie's out of the picture, you're you might as well be campaigning for Trump because you're talking so much about Hillary. And my whole thing is, look, to me, especially after going over how Obama has it, it looks progressive compared to Hillary. I mean, really, when you look at all of these things comparatively with them next to each other it's actually way scarier to me with hillary yeah um and and to me it seems like you know we called obama basically a third term of bush just because he 
didn't really do anything to prosecute anyone. He exacerbated all these measures. And here we are today with like this imperial imperial drones and these weapons of war and all the shit that's still maintaining the empire and still doing all this stuff. But Hillary will take it so much farther. To me, she really does embody a third term of the Bush administration. And if someone was positing to me, would you rather have Bush in the office again or Trump? There is no lesser evil to me when you're looking at those positions. You're giving me Bush or Trump? I, I don't know. Um, so so it's the first time in history, I think, in American history where we've had like the Democratic candidate who's actually provably more of a warmonger, which is really scary. And it's kind of flipped this whole process on its head, I think, revealed just how ludicrous our political system really is and how fake these parties really are and how they don't represent anyone. But that's why I'm just totally unconvinced and I have no idea what's going to happen. I still do think she's going to win, but she's so fake to me that it just means nothing. Nothing she says means anything. And I'm just really scared at the prospect of a Hillary or Trump presidency. I think both are going to be really, really bad um, for the country and the world. And hopefully it'll be a time where we can really insert ourselves in the political dialogue and movement and really change shit. Because I think people are really awakened to how horrible um, things are for potentially the first time. I mean, I'm, I'm because of the, the way things have manifested with Trump becoming so popular and Bernie, um, I think people are really and I think Trump has become popular in a way that people think he's anti-establishment, even though he's not. It's like the way the establishment's treated him has made him more popular, I think, because people have such oh, disillusionments about the government. Yeah. And Absolutely. so that's a dangerous thing, too, where they're like Trump is anti-establishment. He's really not. But it's, mm-hmm. I think I think it's just the way that these candidates have been treated that have, have galvanized the people backing them, being like, we just hate what's going on so much that we're going to back who's like anti-whatever, even though Trump is like a trick. So I think that there's a lot of a lot of uh, hope and I think that there's a lot of change and hope. No, a lot of a lot of silver linings here for for the people and the direction that we can take this country in. Because I even though Democrats and progressives have been dormant under Obama and Clinton, I think that it's really going to be a hard sell. And I think that people really hate Hillary, especially young people. So I just don't see how we're going to fall asleep at the wheel this time. Yeah, I mean. I do see, a, you know, I, I do see there's some hope that people will not let their guard down too much, but I'm really, I am really, really worried that we are at a greater disadvantage in, in a general sense, I guess, like in terms of fighting the establishment than we were even like arguably like at the beginning of the Obama administration or even like the end of the Bush administration, um, just because I feel like people are not willing to commit to to certain positions anymore like they used to be. I mean, there's so much neutrality and fence-sitting going on right now, still about Ukraine, Syria, um, and even Hillary Clinton. The way people look at Hillary Clinton, like people like on the left, they're already turning into apologists. Um, that's very worrisome to me. Right. Um, and I think, you know... In a lot of ways, we've lost our ability to be critical thinkers and to and to really commit to a principle of like, no, I won't fucking stand for this. Like for more military interventions based on bullshit reasons. Like, mm-hmm. and I think we need to get some of that back because if we don't, I mean, I I just don't. I just feel like well, there's no hope be- for the country. I mean, and there's no hope for anyone because we're going to yeah. destroy so much if we don't stand up against that. And that's the first thing we need to stand up against. 
Um, yeah, and sadly, you know, mm-hmm. every time like an ISIS claimed attack happens or whatever, it's just people are just going to get more bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and but- we're going to follow this up in another podcast to talk about some other stuff. But everyone, please check out Maintaining the World Order, a very heavy agenda available on Vimeo. You can either buy it or rent it for what, 48 hours, Robbie? Um. Yeah. Well, no. Seventy-two hours. Okay. Uh, you can you can rent it uh, for one ninety-nine. Um, each part's one ninety-nine, or you can buy, or uh, you can you can download it or stream it for unlimited amount of time, uh, for six ninety-nine uh, each part. And then I have a I just put up a page where it lets you buy the whole trilogy um for like a much cheaper price if you just want to stream and download it all at once. And then if you rent the whole trilogy all at once, you get an entire week. To, to stream it instead of 72 yeah, cause, hours because you need Cause it it's seven it's, hours long <laughs> yeah you you'd need it because it's like really it's like so much but it's like super fun but you also kind of need breaks from like what i'm sure you'd need a break from watching all it all the way through because it's just like a lot to retain like i had to take yeah, notes and shit on it because it was just like damn and then yeah and some there's been some complaints people have made about it and they're fair criticisms about how i do throw a lot of text up in the movie and i don't it's a lot of the times it goes by too quickly to read. And, um, unfortunately I kind of had to make a, I, I, I had to make that executive decision to just let it stay that way because, uh, you know, if you really want to read all of it in its entirety, you can pause it. I didn't, I didn't have that problem at all. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I can understand that people do, but let's just say a lot of the stuff that goes by too quickly to read. Um, it's not necessarily there for you you have to read it it's more just serving as like proof you know evidence of what i'm narrating or Mm. something else happening in the movie um so just keep that in mind while watching it yeah everyone check it out and um let robbie know what you think and if you want to donate to the podcast donate to info mediaroots.org right in the description that you're donating for the podcast because we split all the costs um thanks so much for listening everyone thanks for listening and uh go to a very heavy agenda.com <laughs>